Welcome to episode 21 of the Hot Esquina podcast, the Paul O'Neill episode. This one's near and dear to my heart, ladies and gentlemen. Today, we have a very special episode lined up for you as we have Yankees beat writer Eric Bolin joining us. We're also going to discuss the Yankees' recent series against the Rays and against Toronto. We're going to preview their upcoming series against the Rays. And we're going to get into a little minors talk with the one and only John Brophy, who's back with us, ladies and gentlemen. And we'll be right back. It is high. It is far. It is gone. Ahí va. Por el And we're back. So before we get started, let me welcome on my co-host at this time. First, let me welcome on John Brophy. Welcome back, brother. How's it going, Enrique? I'm doing all right. Thanks for asking. And let me welcome on Sean Negron. Sean, how you doing? Enrique, John, always good talking to you guys. Uh, glad to uh, be talking some baseball. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Let's let's get into it. Um, so, since we hadn't recorded recently, let me fill everybody in. Um, the Yanks had been on a nine-game winning streak. They beat the Rays 2 to nothing Tuesday. Their only offense in this one was an RBI single by IKF in the fourth that scored two. That's all the Yankees would need in this one as Garrett Cole bounced back from his poor outing versus the Twins to the tune of six shutout seven strikeout, one walk innings. He only allowed five hits and lowered his ERA to 333 with Peralta, King, and Holmes holding it down the rest of the way. The Yankees then won 4-3 Wednesday with Judge hitting his 25th home run and Kyle Higashioka hitting what would prove to be a crucial three-run homer in the fifth as the Rays would rally, tallying one run in the sixth and two in the eighth. El Orgullo de Hialeah, Nestor Cortez, had a nice outing, going 5.1 innings pitched, allowing one earned run, striking out four, walking three, and only allowing three hits. Clay Holmes got the save. There was also a weird endless umpire meeting in this one. No need to get into it. It's, it happened. It's over. We don't need to, you know, get into that. Um, the Yanks then won 2-1 to one Thursday on an evening dominated by clutch pitching by Clark Schmidt, who got the start for Luis Severino, who was placed on the COVID IL before this game. Ryan Weber, who was called up to take Sevi's place. Ron Marinaccio and Michael King, who collectively all had nine Ks, two walks, and allowed three hits and an earned run. Offensively, it was the Anthony Rizzo show as his RBI single in the sixth and clutch walk-off home run in the ninth, a top-five signature Yankee moment for him, were all the Yankees needed to win this game. He was the offense, ladies and gentlemen. Yanks then won Friday versus Toronto, 12-3. to Jordan Montgomery started this one and once again got plenty of run support as his luck seems to be turning around. Yanks were up eight runs when Manny Banuelos took over for Monty in the seventh as everyone, and I mean everyone, except Kyle Higashioka, had a hit in this one. Anthony Rizzo continued his momentum from the night prior, hitting a grand slam that put this one out of reach, and Joey Gallo even got into the fun with hitting an RBI double and a two-run homer. This one was a laugher. Yanks then won Saturday afternoon, blank the Jays 4-0 in a game where DJ LeMahieu, Giancarlo Stanton, and Josh Donaldson did not start. One day after Joey Gallo had three RBIs, the other moon man, Aaron Hicks, drove in three RBIs of his own in what was arguably his biggest hit of the year, clearing the bases with two outs in the fourth when he clobbered an Alec Manoa fastball 96 miles an hour to right field. Jamison Tyone went 5.2 shutout innings, striking out eight, walking two, and allowing only four hits. Michael King 
went two innings pitched and Clay Holmes went 1.1 innings pitched for the save, passing Mariano Rivera's record of consecutive scoreless outings with 29 straight, a record Mo previously set in 1999. And now for the recap from today's game, I leave you ladies and gentlemen with Sean Negron because as I said earlier, I did not watch, full disclosure, I did not watch, I could not watch because I was enjoying Father's Day with my son and my dad. So Sean, take it away. Going into, you know, this final game, uh, obviously everyone knows what happened. It was, it was a tough one, but uh, recapping it, you know, Luis Severino was coming in. He seemed to struggle right off the bat to command his fastball. It seemed like he couldn't find the strike zone right away. Uh, he was missing, you know, at high and away. And was walking a bunch of guys to start the game, but uh, eventually giving up a, a two-run home run, you know, off the bat to Vladimir Guerrero. Only gave up another solo home run to Springer. Finished his day with five innings plus, three hits, five runs, five earned, four walks, which I think was the big killer into that game, uh, and nine strikeouts. But uh, on the Yankees hitting side, Torres had a solo home run, his 13th of the year. Also went three for four on the night. He, uh, he had three RBIs as well because he had an RBI double to help the team. His 13th home run of the year. He hit That's now more than what he had in 2020 and 2021 combined. You are really starting to see a new or uh, a revamped Glaber Torres this year. Uh, uh, this man has, you know, went back to second base and has come back to the guy that we know him, you know, very well to be since 2019. Donaldson, you know, he facing his former team where he became an MVP and, you know, had his former glory, you know, he was plunked in the first inning by Kikuchi was very upset by that slammed his bat, broke it was very upset. And then came back in the following at bat and hit a two run home run. Almost seemed like a Disney movie sort of script, you know, being upset and then coming back and hitting the two run home run to give the Yankees the three, two lead at the time. And then you had RBI doubles from judge scoring, Gallo and then an RBI double by Glaber again, both in the top of the fifth, scoring DJ and Judge. Later on in the game, you know, Max Castillo came in for the Blue Jays uh, and he was his MLB debut. He ended up giving back to back home runs to Kyle Higashioka and Marlon Gonzalez. I, I don't know if you guys think the same, but I think that's probably the worst uh, MLB uh, introduction that you can possibly face, especially face someone like Higashioka who's been struggling this year and then Marwin getting his first home run of the year off him. It's uh, pretty much a nightmare scenario for a young kid coming in like that. I think they mentioned that. Um, I think Michael Kay actually said that on the, on the broadcast as well. That's about as worse of an introduction as you can possibly get given how Higashioka has been struggling. He came in and, you know, giving up the home run to Higashioka after he had just introduced him as making his MLB debut. I was like, oh, man, it can't get worse than that. And then Marwin comes back two pitches later and, and makes sure he gets his first of the year. And you're just going, all right, I don't know. That's the worst it can possibly get, I think. So after that, you know, the Yankees were up eight to three. And it seemed like the, the Yankees were about to win their 50th game of the season. But then Severino came out in the sixth, and uh, I was pretty surprised that he, he came out in the sixth, but I think they wanted to see if he could get a quick inning in there. But, you know, he let, he gets the, the first two runners get on. They take him out. They get, you know, Miguel Castro to come in, and he, he seemed pretty good. He, was, he walked the first guy, but his sinker looked really dominant. But then he walked uh, Kirk and then gave up the, uh, the grand slam to Gurriel Jr., which that really hurt the Yankees. You, you felt it as soon as it happened that the momentum had completely shifted. The Yankees were still up eight to seven, but it, it almost seemed like we were losing it. It just felt like, like our heart sank because it, the, the crowd had re-erupted and, and the Yankees just seemed like they were a step behind after that. Then the following inning Peralta comes in, gives up a three run bomb to Teoscar Hernandez makes it 10 to eight. And uh, after that, it, it seems like that was going to be the end of the score, but Rizzo came in to pinch hit. Of course, you know, he's just been absolutely incredible so far this year. And uh, he hits a pinch hit, uh, solo home run, his 18th of the year. It's unbelievable what he's done to, to start this first half of the year. I, I, I fully expect him to be an all-star, as he should be. And, uh, you know, he, he came in, he made a 10-9. to nine. The Yankees had a chance in the, in the top of the ninth with second and third and two outs. But Rizzo, who came in and to pinch hit in the eighth, was also up again in the ninth. Ended up grounding out to second base and ending the game. 
So even when the Yankees, you thought like they blew the game to lose it, they still are right there to come back. It was still a really, you know, it was a tough loss, probably the, the toughest loss this season. But, you know, the Yankees lose their nine-game winning streak and, uh, you know, losing 10-9. to nine. But I would have to say that, you know, everyone's really upset and down. I know on Yankees Twitter land, whatever you want to call it, they, they're, they're all broken up about this. But I would say this is probably one of the only times where I will say it's a good loss because sometimes when you have someone like a team that's so dominant and you feel like it's so invincible – you, you know, you're going into every game thinking you're going to win regardless of where you play. Sometimes you need like a quick, you know, punch them out to really wake you back up and feel some adversity to realize that you're not better than anyone. You're not, you know, invincible. You can lose on any given night. And so I think depending on how the Yankees respond to this, I think that they could come right back and have that fire in them to take two out of three or even three out of three at the trap. But, uh, I think that's enough Yankees talk for me and from Enrique for a little bit, but I, I want to bring this to, to you, John, to talk some minors talk. Uh, love having you on every, every uh, Monday. That's probably my, one of my favorite segments in, in our pod. So I'll let you take it away from here. Thank you, Sean. Um, I'm going to go briefly over to uh, a couple of the top prospects of the, uh, the past week. So let's start off with the complex league. Uh, let's start off with catcher Augustine Ramirez. The Complex League has only had eight games so far. At least Augustine Ramirez has only played in eight games. And in all of those eight games, Ramirez has had a hit. So he has a uh, hit streak of eight games. Um, In those eight games, he has 15 hits, only one strikeout, 18 RBI. So altogether with that, that, that that gives you a 441 batting average, 472 on base percentage, 824 slugging and a ridiculous 1.296 OPS. Um, Obviously that's probably on a tanium as far as full season stats goes. Um, But, you know, this is, he's one of those kind of prospects to keep an eye on. Um, He was really fun to watch last year, but going behind Antonio Gomez, he obviously wasn't going to get a whole ton of playing time. So um, with Gomez being in uh, now single A Tampa, um, it'll be fun to watch to see what he does this year. Uh, moving up across the street to the Tampa Tarpons, um, Grant Richardson has had himself quite a week and actually quite a month of June. So, so far in the month of June, he's played in 11 games, 15 hits, 14 RBI, only eight strikeouts. He has a 405 batting average, 476 on base percentage. 730 slugging and a 1.206 OPS. Uh, Grant Richardson was a, a 2021 draft pick out of uh, Indiana. He didn't really get the uh, the attention of say uh, Trey Sweeney, obviously, because Trey Sweeney was the first round draft pick. You know, so he was kind of one of those under the radar. We didn't know kind of what we were going to get as far as the everyday Yankee fan. Um, so seeing what he, we would get out of him is, you know, that, that's been a lot of fun to watch. Um, he did hit a grand slam the other day. Um, he did almost hit a three-run home run. It, it missed by, I don't know, like five feet maybe, and it bounced off the top of the wall. Um, so that was that was really, really, really close. Uh, moving up the East Coast to Hudson Valley, Everson Pereira had himself quite a night. Actually, Hudson Valley's had a hell of a series. I think they scored – they scored 22 runs the other night, and I think they scored 11 runs today or something like that. They've had a heck of a series against Greenboro in North Carolina. Um, on June 17th, so that was on Friday, uh, he went four for six, 11 total bases, seven RBI without striking out. Uh, so far uh, for this season, he's batting 273 with a 774 OPS. In Somerset, um, and this is actually kind of a surprise to me, Carson Coleman is a relief pitcher. Um, he, I would imagine neither of you two knew who Carson Coleman is. You know, he, he's not really on anybody's radar. Um, so Carson Coleman is a, he was a draft pick out of Kentucky, I think 2018, 19, somewhere around there. Um, he's, he has so far for this year, 33 and a third innings pitch, pitch in 18 games, 0.54 ERA with a 0.72 whip. He's only given up two earned runs in 33 and a third, has 51 strikeouts and eight saves. Last year with Tampa, he had a six ERA in 35 and a third innings. 
So to have a, a 0.54 ERA is pretty remarkable in just a couple months, basically. And then we go up to Scranton. There's nobody really in the Scranton roster that people don't really know about because there's so many people that are on the Texas squad, Miguel Andujar, and all the pitchers that are in Scranton. So I'll go with Oswald Peraza because that's not really somebody that Yankee fans have really seen in person, I guess you could say, as far as on TV. He has had a pretty good season so far. Um, so far for the month of June, he's 12 for 45, 12 games. He has a 267 batting average with a 346 on base percentage, 444 slugging, and a 790 OPS. And that's where I think the difference between Peraza and Volpe is. Even though Volpe has been struggling a little bit in Somerset, I think he's he has a higher caliber of, of play than Peraza does from what I know of his work ethic. And that's not to say that Peraza doesn't have a work ethic, but I think Volpe ha- is a stronger uh, a worker, I guess you could say, than um, Peraza does. There's no way you can answer this right now, but, you know, going, in, going into, you know, the season, it almost seemed like Peraza was like a shoe-in to come in before Volpe and even possibility to come in this year. But with how the Yankees have been this year, it almost seems like Peraza's not going to have a significant role unless IKF goes down for a significant amount of time and the Yankees don't go out of the organization to get a shortstop. But it almost seems like Peraza's uh, kind of hitting that spot where they don't have a place for him, especially with Volpe coming up. So, you know, my question would be then, you know, it's impossible for you to answer. So it's kind of like an opinionated question, but who do you see first being in pinstripes? I think, and this is kind of, this has kind of been my logic for a little while now. I think, um, and especially more so that Kinder Falefa is the shortstop. I think Kinder Falefa stays the shortstop. Peraza gets traded, especially with the trade deadline being so close. Volpe becomes the shortstop. And then they place Sweeney somewhere because Sweeney has a lot more of a capable bat and Sweeney is a lot more versatile where um, he could play third or he could play second. And I, I would even say more so with Cabrera too, because Oswaldo Cabrera um, is a versatile player as well. Oswald Peraza, I don't know because he's been really up and down this, this whole year because in April he was batting 197. In May, uh, Peraza was batting 216. So June has really been his best month so far. But I mean, in AAA, if you're only if you're batting right around 200, that's not going to work that well in the majors, you know, and, and that's kind of a problem in double A. I mean, you know, if we'll be struggling in double A, that'll give him a chance to, um, to, to fix things because double A is, is the, the make or break year for the most part. That's what I understand about double A. John, it's funny that you mentioned this because, you know, in all our conversations we've ever had regarding the minors, you've always viewed Sweeney as the one that's more likely to get traded. So it's funny to hear yeah. you kind of change your stance on that now. Yeah, and, and I, that's true. I, I have said that in, in previous um, podcast episodes, but I, I do think that Peraza is at this point the one that gets traded because with the performance that he's had this year, because keep in mind, when we recorded those, that was prior to the season beginning. So at that stage that was going off of last season stats. So looking at how he has performed this year so far and going, going off of May and, and April stats, I would almost see that he would perform probably better with a, a different uniform. Think of like a Sonny Gray or, um, you know, something like that. Uh, I mean, there's so many other prospects that I can think of. Uh, Jorge Mateo, or, you know, I could think of, Another prospect that that I saw in Tampa, Mark Payton, he did pretty well with uh, Cincinnati. Um, there's so many other prospects that I can think of that I can't even think of off the top of my head right now that made the majors. But I don't know if I don't know if Peraza is enough of an impact at this point, given the way that he's been playing in AAA uh, so far this season. That's my favorite thing about baseball is because, you know, for one second. You think like, oh, well, they definitely will be traded eventually. But then something happens and all of a sudden they're a key piece of the organization. 
and then you know everything changes so you, you really never know like one day it could be sweeney the next it could be praza in two years from now if volpe gets to a bad start people are going to ask for him to be removed so it's that's how quickly baseball is that's how quickly yankees you know fans are you know we had this discussion when i first joined the show about Andujar, about Andujar, there was no doubt in my mind he had to be moved and all that. And then I didn't even think he was really even going to get a shot in the majors. He comes to the majors, proves that he could still hit at a major league level and rightfully deserved to be here still. And then the, the thing was, you know, we just didn't have any room for him, so he gets sent back down. But you saw how quickly, I, uh, you know, even I had mentioned on the podcast, he went from someone that definitely needs to be traded to fan, Yankee fans saying, Oh, we got to keep him trade Gallo to now it. He's asking for a trade. Oh, yeah, we got to trade him again. So, in, in a matter of 50 to 60 games, you see how quickly things can change. That's baseball, Susan. That's right. I couldn't have said it better myself, John. That's you literally hit the perfect answer, man. And I'm sure John Sterling appreciates that you're your namesake. I'm sure he appreciates you shouting him out like that. <laughs> Well, John, unless you have something else to add, man. No, that's all for me for this week. I'll be at a couple games. Turpins are back home. Uh, they play Clearwater, I believe, this week. Uh, so I'll be at a couple games. If you see me, uh, you're more than welcome to say hi. Uh, otherwise, I'll see you guys next week. And everybody remember, watch this man's stuff that he puts out on Twitter. Follow him at Baseball. Read his stuff at Pinstripe Prospects. And... As always, John, thank you for the insight, my brother. Thank you, Enrique and Sean, for having me on again. No problem, man. Hey, you're of course, the patriarch. anytime, bro. <laughs> you, bro, you're the patriarch to this <laughs> podcast. You don't got to thank us. We wouldn't be here. I, if thank, it you. For you. I <laughs> thank, thank you. I thank you. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. We both do. Well, now that we heard John's take on the minors, let's transition back to the majors and bring on none other then Eric Boland of Newsday. We hope you enjoy this segment, ladies and gentlemen. Here it is. And now, without further ado, I'd like to welcome on Eric Boland, Yankees beat reporter since 2009. You can find all his work on Newsday, and you could definitely find him on Twitter posting all types of interesting stuff about the Yankees. Eric, how you doing? I'm doing great, Enrique, Sean, John. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad we could uh, uh, work this out. We're very happy to have you on. That's for sure, right, boys? We're we're honored to to be on with you and uh, get your knowledge. That's for sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's really great to have you on, Eric. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, it's good after the a couple little uh, DMs between each other, we finally found a day to make it work and. Uh, you know, very grateful that you uh, came on and glad to uh, pick your brain about some baseball knowledge. Let's do it. All right. So let's get right into it. Uh, first one from me, Eric, um, as someone who's been a beat writer for the team since 2009, is this the most impressive team you've seen since that time? I mean, my goodness, you know, you had the 2009 World Series team and then we've had our ups and downs since then. So I got to imagine you're impressed with this team, huh? Yeah. I mean, look, it's probably the most complete team and, and you always have to throw in the caveat that we're, we're in mid June and, and we don't know how things are going to finish out. And uh, the 2009 team, obviously Enrique was able to, uh, you know, to finish the job. Uh, that was a really good, really deep team too. And, and I think people do forget how good the teams were in 2010, 11, and 12, and then started to slip a little bit in the 17 team, of course. Uh, this is probably the best team, uh, certainly since the 2017 team that uh, went to game seven of the ALCS uh, against the Astros, probably should have won that series. Uh, this team has the best pitching staff that I've seen in my time covering the Yankees. Uh, Again, saying that it is mid-June and we have to let the rest of the season play out, see how if everyone stays healthy. It's really remarkable that they've made it this far. And if you look at teams across the sport, uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of another team that has their entire rotation intact in mid-June, the same rotation that they started the year with. Uh, to me, is as impressive as the offense has been at times this year. 
the reason this team is on the historic pace that, that it is, um, even with the loss today uh, in Toronto, it, it's because of top to bottom, both rotation and bullpen, uh, just absolute lights out pitching. To me, that, that's the separator between the Yankees and pretty much everyone else in the American League right now. And then you throw in the fact that, that they're leading in most offensive categories, and, and that explains uh, you know, why they were, they were you know, almost able to, uh, to start off 50 and 16, which would have matched the best start in the history of the franchise. Uh, the, the 28 and, and 39 teams uh, also started 50 and 16, but uh, 49 and 17 is, uh, is nothing to be embarrassed about. Well, kind of piggyback off of what uh, Enrique was saying, and this was a brief discussion on the Yankees TV broadcast earlier, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing him in a rehab start sometime soon here in Tampa. Where do you see Domingo Herman fit in an already really good Yankees rotation? Well, he doesn't have a spot right now, John, uh, because who would you take out? You know, going into uh, to today, um, and, and the word gets used in our business or misused often in our business, uh, irony, but it is ironic that Garrett Cole has the highest ERA of any Yankee starter. Going into today, that, that was the case. So um, I, you're not going to bump anybody out of the rotation for, for Domingo Herman or for anybody else for that matter. Uh, so I would say when he is healthy, uh, if there are no injuries to the rotation, then he'll slot into the bullpen in, in some way, shape, or form. I'm not exactly sure what kind of a role that that, uh, that might be. Uh, or they might leave him in AAA uh, and have him just, uh, you know, stretch out down there and keep him extended just in case uh, there is the inevitable injury that does occur to every single rotation at some point during a season. Some teams obviously have it uh, worse than others when it comes to those types of things. But uh, right now there really just is not a spot or an, even a need you could say for, uh, for Domingo Herman. But I would also caution, you know, he's coming back from a, a somewhat serious shoulder injury. He needs to get through an entire rehab process before anything can be declared ready. You know, he has not uh, really, he's just at the beginning stages of that process. We've seen time and time again, you guys have watched and covered baseball for a very long time. Just because a guy starts a rehab assignment doesn't mean he's going to finish it uh, on time. We saw that just a more recent example with the Yankees with Luis Severino last year. Uh, how many setbacks did he have uh, before he was finally able to come back in September? He was supposed to be back around June. Uh, had a, had a setback, uh, one of his starts with AAA, and then when he came back in August, had another setback uh, and didn't make it back until uh, until September. So uh, while it's encouraging what we've seen with the Dingo, Domingo Herman, uh, I would say he say he's still a ways away from returning. Yeah, I, hopefully he can come back soon, and when he does have a role that actually works out, uh, he can be a big piece for us later in the season. But uh, my next question keeping it to today because, you know, today was a tough loss. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to ask you quickly, uh, what did you, what have you thought of so far of the last two series against the Rays, you know, sweeping them and then taking two out of three from the Blue Jays? I mean, it's, I, I get a little bit tired of, and look, and anyone who's followed me over the years, I'm not a Yankees homer. I don't care if they win or lose. It's not my job. I'm not paid by the team. I'm paid by Newsday to cover the team. I consider myself pretty objective when it comes to these sorts of things. Um, I'm very happy to, to, not happy, that's not the right word, but I'm very willing to criticize the organization, and I have, uh, when I think that they've made mistakes. I've been very critical of their analytics department over the years, which has not necessarily curried me a lot of favor, uh, and that's fine. That's just, that's, that's the nature of the job. I'm setting up for what I'm about to say. I got a little bit tired of a narrative that started to develop in the last few weeks about how the Yankees uh, were had taken advantage of a soft schedule and they really hadn't played anybody yet. Um, and so I think if nothing else, and I thought that was absolutely ridiculous, how you can say that about a team two plus months into a, a, a major league season that they haven't played anyone yet is just factually untrue. Um, that said, I think it was uh, I don't even say important for the Yankees, but maybe just important for, for people's, you know, common sense to see that, you know, two teams that, that, that are considered to be uh, at least going into the season uh, contenders for the AL East that the Yankees pretty much ran roughshod over. And, and today was, was a, a setback, but a very minor one. Uh, these types of things happen. Every team has bullpen implosions. Maybe today was a little bit more shocking because the Yankees have had so few of them this year. Um, but uh, the way they took care of the Rays, uh, the way they took care of the 
the Blue Jays the first two games of the series. They're really non-competitive games for the most part, even against Alec Manoa, who in his previous four career starts against the Yankees really had had uh, his way with them. Uh, and they just sort of grinded out a, a, a four nothing victory uh, yesterday. They looked like they were well on their way today to, to a series sweep when they were up eight to three going into the bottom of the sixth. And we saw, of course, what they did on Friday night. So, um, I, you know, I'm not sure how much significance to affix to this week. Uh, starting with the race uh, sweep earlier on in, in the week, but uh, it, it did, if nothing else, put to rest a very tired and frankly stupid narrative about the Yankees not playing anyone yet. Like you said earlier in when we started this segment, uh, a lot of this with the Yankees and their success has had to do with their offense and how good they've been hitting. One person that has not been a part of that, unfortunately, is Joey Gallo. Um, entering Saturday's game, Joey had been hitting 245, however, with an 890 OPS, four home runs, and two doubles in his last 15 games. He's now at nine home runs with a 191 batting average, a 678 OPS. Is he on the verge of turning his season around, given you know how good he's been doing his last 15 games? Obviously, he didn't do anything today or yesterday, but entering Saturday, he looked like he was turning it around I think Joey Gallo is who he is at this point if you watched him in Texas for seven years he, he was a, a feaster famine guy uh, that obviously you know had a run of, of you know 30 plus home run seasons and that's the guy the Yankees thought would be a perfect fit uh, at Yankee Stadium particularly with that lefty swing obviously um, and he's been a feaster famine hitter since he's come to New York except for it's been more famine than feast um, does he, is he going to ever be a 275, 285 hitter? I would say probably not. Uh, but the thing with Gallo, and I was talking to a, a coach from another team uh, a couple of weeks ago, he said, even if Gallo is in a stretch of 0 for 30 with 15 strikeouts, you still have to respect the fact that if your pitcher makes a mistake, he can hit at 480 feet. Uh, and we saw him hit a couple of bombs in Minneapolis. Uh, we saw him hit one uh, just the other day uh, here at Rogers Center, hit it off the, the facing of the, the, the fifth deck. I can tell you covering a lot of games here over the years, uh, that, that's a spot in this ballpark uh, that does not see a lot of baseballs. Uh, so even when he's going poorly, and let's be honest, since he's been a Yankee, it's been uh, mostly poor. Um, he still is a guy that, the opposing team and the opposing team pitcher uh, is very much aware of and, and believes that you can't make a mistake with this guy or he can hurt you, even if he, he's going badly. Um, I don't think he's going anywhere. I do know that, that other teams are interested. You know, if the Yankees decide they want to trade him at the deadline, I've talked to scouts from several different teams who have asked me about him uh, just in terms of uh, makeup and how he's looked at in the clubhouse, et cetera. And that's that's what scouts do sometimes. They're not going to ask me how to evaluate his swing or anything like that, nor should they. If I saw the game like a hitting coach or a scout, I would be a hitting coach or a scout. Uh, what I can help with is if they ask me, you know, what what's how do his teammates interact with him? How has he looked at behind the scenes? Does the organization like him? Is it considered coachable, et cetera? Etc. And and he does check all of those boxes. By the way, he's very well liked in the Yankees clubhouse. A little bit quirky, I'm sure you've probably read some of that. Uh, but but he is uh, liked, respected, admired by his teammates. How he's handled uh, a lot of the struggles that he's had. Uh, if the Yankees do decide to move him and, and upgrade at the outfield position, which is a possibility uh, at the trade deadline, uh, the Yankees would not have any trouble getting any suitors. What they could get back for him, I, I can't answer that um, because we're still so far away from the trade deadline and you still don't know exactly what uh, other teams needs will be uh, but I think you know anybody thinking that Joey Gallo is suddenly going to become in year eight or nine of his big league career something that he has not been to this point in his career uh, you know is probably dreaming a little bit so I think the best that you can hope for uh, with Gallo is that he does what he did in Texas, which is, you know, the batting average is always going to be kind of low, uh, but his on-base percentage was pretty good for a guy having as low of an average as he did because of his walks, and he's a good eye at the plate, uh, which has not always been evident in his time with the Yankees. That has improved uh, slightly uh, this season, and certainly, you know, in recent weeks. Um, 
but again, uh, thinking it's that he's going to become a, a contact hitter or a move the runners along uh, type of guy just isn't realistic. But one other thing about Gallo that I don't think, and, and I uh, argue with people, whether it's on radio shows, if I get asked to do those, or, or just on Twitter, um, people don't give him enough credit for how good of a defensive outfielder he is. Uh, and that's something that um, I know it's not sexy and it can be lost sometimes. And, and I'm guilty of it too in writing game stories because somebody makes a great catch in the second inning of a game uh, to save a run or two. Uh, and then a bunch of stuff happens later in the game and you forget about it or you just don't have space in your story to address it. Uh, but there's been a lot of those that have happened this year where he's made catches that not a lot of outfielders uh, would make. Uh, and trust me, it doesn't escape the notice of the pitching staff. My last question that you, you kind of spoke briefly on um, regarding Luis Severino. I asked previously on Twitter, given that we're about a year out from his first rehab start with Tampa, if my followers had expected Luis Severino to be as dominant as he's been so far this season, um, what are your thoughts in that regard? Given that how he'd made so many setbacks because when he was in Tampa, he had that one pretty decent outing in June. And then he went up to Hudson Valley and then he had that, um, I think it was like that groin injury. And then he had that setback. And then we didn't know where that was going to go. And then now he going into today, he, I think he had like a 2.8 ERA. Uh, where do you think his season stands right now? Is this kind of where you expected him to be? I mean, I'd I, if I'm being completely honest, I, I, I thought if he was healthy, um, that he would have a pretty good year because I've seen Luis Severino, you guys obviously have as well. Um, when he's been healthy, he's, he's a frontline pitcher. You know, I mean, this is a guy that was in, you know, contention, if you will, to start an all-star game, his last healthy season, which was, you know, 2018. Um, so I, I thought with health that he would be pretty good. I, I wasn't, I thought he might get off to a slower start though. So I am a little bit shocked or shocked, probably too strong a word, but a little bit surprised in that regard, just how quickly he, he resumed being dominant after, uh, you know, making basically, I think he's had seven appearances going into this year had seven appearances altogether the previous three years. Um, so for him to just sort of, you know, snap of the fingers uh, to, be as good as he was pre-injury, um, it was a little bit surprising to me. But uh, he's a guy that works his rear end off behind the scenes, uh, is committed to his craft, is committed to learning uh, his craft. You know, he, he was very close to CC Sabathia, uh, you know, learned at his feet, if you will, uh, you know, coming up in the organization, you know, he all the veteran uh, Yankee pitchers that he could possibly talk to, uh, he did that. And so, uh, you know, he's just, a, he's just a good pitcher. And I think he's a better pitcher now than he was at his, uh, you know, when he was 22, 23 years old, because he just has, you know, a lot more experience. I think the one the one asterisk that you have to throw in there with Severino is that the Yankees are going to have to manage his innings this year because uh, he's not going to be in a position because of how few innings he's thrown the previous three years. He's not going to suddenly jump up to say 220 innings this year. You know, a guy like Garrett Cole, you don't worry about, you just turn loose. You know, he's been a horse pretty much his entire career has never been hurt. Uh, and you just, you pencil him in for, for 200 plus innings. Uh, you, you really can't do that with Severino and the Yankees aren't going to try. And at some point, they're going to start managing his innings. By the way, they're going to start doing that with Nestor Cortez uh, as well, because Cortez is another guy that does not have a lot of innings under his belt. Uh, when you look at it, you know, collectively uh, in his career, this is his first full season uh, as, a, as a major league starter. So, you know, those two guys, that is one thing in the second half of the season where they're going to be manipulating those guys innings a little bit. Uh, maybe they'll skip him. Maybe they'll, you know, start him for a game and, and pull him after three innings or something like that. I think they're better off skipping him rather than doing that. I think we all remember when they tried to make Java Chamberlain a starter uh, and they did that where they, <laughs> you guys can be memes with the, uh, with your facial reactions just now. Uh, we all remember how that backfired. And by the way, I thought the Yankees did the right thing making Java a starter. It's a lot harder to get good starters in major league baseball than it is good relievers. So I, there was no objection to them uh, trying to see what they had with him in terms of a starter, but uh, starting him in games and then pulling him after three innings, after four innings, whatever it was, uh, Java didn't like it. I can tell you that. And it, it, it clearly uh, didn't work. So I, I think the Yankees will do it 
the the you know and they've kind of hinted at this in terms of skipping you know those guys and give them a sixth day a seventh day etc and you know going back to the question about Domingo Herman that's where a guy like that uh, could be very valuable because when they do have to start uh, manipulating these guys a little bit to keep their innings down uh, somebody's going to have to make those uh, those starts and so that's where uh, where quality depth comes in and, and where a guy like uh, Domingo Herman might prove to be helpful. Well, you actually just now helped me ask my next question because I wasn't thinking this until you just said this. But now, you know, obviously Severino was probably going to be on the innings limit. And I had said that on a previous podcast. Uh, Nestor Cortez, it makes sense to have him on an innings limit too, you know, later towards the season. And then, you know, bringing up Domingo Herman, he, you know, can fill in for certain stars. But I know Yankees Twitter has asked this question a thousand times, but can you see the Yankees either looking into someone outside the organization to fill as a starting role, or you think they could stick with a Herman or a Clark Schmidt and go that route? Yeah, no, I mean, look, there's, there's no question that, you know, the Yankees are going to do something at the trade line deadline, or they're going to, try hard to do something at the trade deadline, whether it's major surgery to the roster or just minor surgery uh, remains to be seen. And again, we're still so far away from that. Uh, you don't know which teams that think they're in contention now or suddenly three weeks from now going to decide we're not in contention. So let's sell off some pieces. You know, you just don't know who's going to be available at this point. And frankly, with the Yankees, they have not been hit with injuries yet. If they suddenly give, have a run where they get a bunch of guys that get uh, end up on the, the injured list, then, then that changes the, the equation as well uh, but I, I looking at the roster right now I would say going into the trade deadline they're going to look to upgrade potentially at the outfield spot they'd like to get another reliever and yes if they could add uh, starting pitching depth absolutely I, I could see them uh, going in that direction because I don't think um, if you had one or two key guys in the rotation get hurt. I think you could plug and play with, with a couple of guys, but I really don't think organizationally their depth is as good as what you know they publicly say that it is, where you'd be comfortable uh, throwing somebody for five, six, seven starts uh, who's not an established big leaguer, um, you know, in in a role for a guy that that is on the the injured list. So, Sean, I, I definitely think that uh, them acquiring a starter, not an ace, not a frontline guy, maybe not even. A, a two or a three, but an innings eater type of a guy. Um, I don't think that's beyond the realm of possibility at all. Speaking of trades, Eric, um, that actually is a perfect segue to my question to, for you. Um, Miguel and Duhar requested to be traded after being sent down the AAA following Giancarlo Stanton coming off the IL. This is not the first time he's requested to be moved and he just seems to be tired of the inconsistency of being called up, sent down, called up, sent down. Um, do you think he'll ultimately get traded uh, at the deadline or maybe next year? I think there's a, a decent possibility, Enrique, that that happened. I'm glad that you mentioned, by the way, that that this isn't the first time he's requested to be traded. He, he did it uh, at, toward the end of last year. Uh, thank you for not treating that like breaking news the way some people did uh, in, in our business, which I think sometimes it can be embarrassing uh, because people just aren't paying attention. And the Yankees were trying to trade him in spring training. I, I tweeted uh, the day that Luke Voigt was traded. I said that the Yankees were aggressively trying to trade both Luke Voigt and Miguel and Duhar because I've been asked by a, a, a several different organizations about both of those guys about some of the things that we were talking about earlier, you know, makeup and 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 the like. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's really not an unusual situation. It's also not unusual for a guy to get asked to, to be traded uh, who's not getting playing time. I think there's a decent chance at that. But again, if you get a couple of injuries in terms of the bats with this team, suddenly Andujar could become a valuable piece. And that's why, you know, the, the notion that because he asked for a trade that it was going to happen the next day, um, which was, you know, part of the, uh, the, the Twitter verse. And again, even in, you know, in, in reputable uh, publications uh, was kind of laughable, to be honest. Uh, again, this thing goes up, this type of thing goes on all the time. And most of the time, uh, the general manager, when they get that call from a player's agent, they say, oh, yes, you know, we understand why he's frustrated, et cetera, et cetera. And that general manager hangs up the phone and he moves on with his day. And nothing happens. Um, it's certainly not in the immediate, uh, sh the short term. Uh, if you put a gun to my head and said, will M Miguel and Duhar be a Yankee after the trade deadline? I would say 55-45, he won't be. 
but that's not real strong, I don't think. I'm not saying 80-20 or 90-10, something like that. I think there's a decent chance that he gets traded, but I don't think it's anything close to a guarantee. And they do like the player. You know, it's not a situation where they would uh, they necessarily see him as an everyday third baseman the way that they did uh, in his, his rookie of, uh, or second place rookie of the year finish in 2018. And he wasn't as bad at third base, by the way, as what the, the myth that's kind of, you know, developed over the years. You, you would think he was one of the worst infielders in, in the history of baseball, the way people talk about it. It's like, oh, you could never put him at third base. He really wasn't that bad over there. He wasn't good, but, but you know, people decided at 23 years old, he would never be able to improve, which just drove me crazy. I never understood why he was tagged with, a, oh, he can't be a third baseman at 23 years old. It was, it was just a ridiculous narrative. Um, but athletically, he looks good in left field, looks okay. I mean, we, don't, we haven't seen him on an everyday basis, but he certainly, uh, you know, can track down the, the, he makes the plays that he should make. Um, it's not, you know, peak Brett Gardner out there, but, um, you know, he, he, he wasn't, he didn't hurt him. And the bat is a real thing. We know that. But when he's been healthy, he's hitting the, in the major leagues, which is why I don't believe it's a guarantee that they would get rid of him unless another team desperately wants him and they're willing to trade up something of value for something that the Yankees feel that, that they need, such as, you know, a, a, another quality bullpen arm or a, a starter to eat up some innings. Okay. Um, so I have a, a, a kind of a, a B question. Do you have any info on Isaiah kinder -Falefa? Yeah, so uh, that, that was the big question, because when Stanton gets on with one out in the ninth inning, naturally, Isaiah, who's a base-stealing threat, you would put him in for Stanton who could score or Isaiah could score on a double or maybe steal a base and then score on a single. Anyway, left hamstring tightness that uh, kind of cropped up uh, when he was uh, scoring in the fourth inning on Saturday, he said that he felt that um, a little bit of a, a tweak. They don't think that it's serious. He's hopeful that he'll be back in there tomorrow. My feeling is on the on the, the tough turf in Tampa, they'll probably give him one extra day, uh, but there's no test scheduled as of now. Uh, they don't believe that it's serious, but I've been doing this long enough to where uh, until a guy is actually back out on the field, uh, I, I take with a grain of salt what the team tells me on things like that. Uh, so my next question is uh, kind of talking about the Yankees still, you know, obviously Yankees start off seven and six. And then since then have been 42 and 11, it would have been nice to be 43 and 10 and have that kind of fit in there, but you know, it's okay. <laughs> but, you know, uh, incredible uh, switch since going seven and six and now being what they are now Yankees Twitter loves to have this debate all the time on whether, it's the players, it's the coaches who have done this change. It's, you know, it's, it's all Cashman, it's Boone, it's Dylan Lawson, or it's Matt Blake, you know, it, it, everyone has their, you know, two cents. So I'm asking someone that actually knows the team. Um, what do you think is the most significant reason or, or even any sort of reason that why the Yankees have changed so much from the 2021 team to now? Well, I think the front office, which is run entirely by the analytics department, you know, it's, it's an all powerful, you know, group. I, I've been critical of them in some regards, in a lot of regards for some of the things that they've done uh, over the years. Um, you know, for example, you know, I know they were not happy that I wrote that the reason Phil Nevin was let go after last year was because he basically backtalked some influential members of the analytics department. And, and it's a group that does not like to be questioned. Uh, they don't like people to push back. Uh, they think that they're smarter than whoever they're talking to, uh, whether it's players, coaches, etc. Um, and so, uh, you know, Nevin pushed back a little bit too much. And so he was gone. That's the reason he was let go. It had nothing to do with sending Aaron Judge in the wild card game. Uh, had nothing to do with any other, other you know, Know, nonsense that sort of got leaked out uh, by people in the organization uh, to, uh, you know, acquiescing media people that repeated what they said uh, had nothing to do with any of that stuff. Uh, and I can go down a long list of people that have been jettisoned from the organization the last five years or so uh, for questioning those guys. Uh, that said, I will be very fair here. Uh, that part of the organization deserves credit for uh, a lot of guys. And you can start with Clay Holmes uh, as one such example. Uh, that was a great find. Juan de Peralta obviously uh, fits into that group. I remember a lot of criticism of the Yankees when they traded Mike Talkman for, for uh, Juan de Peralta because Talkman was kind of a, a fan favorite. Um, and they absolutely hit a home run on that. And I can go down the list of a lot of their successes. Um, 
they've had some failures too, and they never acknowledge that. They will pat themselves on the back until they give themselves, uh, you know, shoulder tendonitis uh, for some of the guys that I just mentioned. But then when you mention Andrew Haney, then it's somebody else's fault. Okay. Now, what happened organizationally is that they finally decided after that defense was you know, not a priority and that base stealing uh, was not a priority and, and clubhouse chemistry was not something uh, that was relevant because you can't measure it. And so therefore to a lot of those type of guys, it doesn't exist if you can't measure it on a spreadsheet. Uh, they, they finally had a come to Jesus moment in the off season with all of those things that those were important things. Okay. And so that's why you have, and, and I, I absolutely loathe with every fiber of my body, the cliche, this is a, a close knit clubhouse team chemistry, et cetera, because a lot of times, and I've talked to veteran players about this off the record over the years, as they've told me, a lot of times it's not true. We all say that we're close. We all say that it's the best team chemistry we've ever been on, on a year to year basis. And, it, and it's, it's BS a lot of times it's true with this team. Okay. It actually is a legitimate thing. And, and I, you notice it when you're in the clubhouse uh, and behind the scenes, people talk about it in ways that in previous years, when it's not as true, uh, they don't talk about. Um, so I know it's a very long meandering answer that I'm giving you here, but um, I, I think that the credit needs to be dispersed across the board. Uh, the, the analytics uh, department that I've been critical of, uh, they deserve credit for uh, finally uh, deciding that's, that maybe they didn't have all the answers on every aspect of, of a very complex sport that's tough to figure out that maybe they had not figured it all out you know, completely. Uh, but at the end of the day, guys, it's all about the players. Okay. And, you know, Aaron Judge is having an MVP caliber season. Uh, Anthony Rizzo uh, is already has 18 home runs. Uh, you know, he's well on his way to, you know, hitting a, a career high in, in home runs. I don't think anybody saw that coming. Uh, and he's very good, obviously, defensively at, at first base. Um, uh, Kiner Falefa, after a, just a horrendous start uh, to his season, uh, you know, it, it gets on base. It's a good contact hitter. Uh, and he solidified the shortstop position defensively um, in, in a way that hasn't been solidified since, uh, you know, Didi Gregoris's first uh, few years as a Yankee before he got hurt. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just a, a complete team top to bottom. And yes, and, and you know, Matt Blake deserves some of that credit. Don't sleep on Hensley Mullins, the, um, the, the assistant hitting coach who won three World Series titles for Bruce Bochy uh, with the Giants organization. And Bochy for years was pushing anyone who would listen, and not a lot of people listened for a variety of reasons, was pushing Mullins for a, a manager's job, uh, which has not yet come to him. He, a lot of people forget he finished second to Boone uh, it, when uh, after they got rid of Joe Girardi. Mullins was actually the favorite, and then Boone interviewed, and, and they decided to go in that direction. But they were blown away by Hensley as well. Um, I hope he does get a manager's job at some point because he certainly deserves it. Uh, and I can tell you that a lot of the hitters like talking to him because he has such a wealth of experience and again um you know you you can't just you can't sleep on three world series uh, titles that he won with, with the giants uh he certainly deserve credit um you know uh, boone obviously the way that he communicates with the players he, he's, a, he's a great messenger you know the players know that that he has their back uh regardless of the situation um and it is a very close-knit uh, group without question like i said it's the best team chemistry i think i've seen on a yankee team uh maybe in you know, not that the other teams were, you know, were not close, but it's just different this year. And it's probably the best I've seen in, in you know, 10 years, I would say, um, in, in that regard. So, um, you know, there, it, it's never one thing when a team gets off to a, a start like this or a, a team comes together like this. Uh, it's kind of an all of the above uh, type of a thing. Uh, you know, I will say behind the scenes, some people are taking credit for it who have no business taking credit for it. But I guess that's probably true in, in, in every walk of life. One final question from me. Um, we know you're pressed for time. Um, it actually, you gave me the perfect segue again. It's about a guy you just mentioned, Clay Holmes. He recently passed Mariano Rivera's record of consecutive scoreless outings on Saturday, has been untouchable this season, let's be honest, and has taken the reins of the closer role in Chapman's absence. Uh, do the Yankees have controversy at the closer position once Chapman comes back? No. 
any more any more questions about that no look i and re, it's a fair question in the way boone answered the question the other day obviously put fuel on on this fire when he said that you know when chapman comes back you know i see holmes in a variety of roles there is about zero percent chance that when chapman comes back that they reinsert him into the closers role does it mean he's never going to close the rest of the season obviously not but with you combine the fact that chapman wasn't very good before he went on the il was had gave up runs in five consecutive outings before landing on the il and you combine that with what holmes has been doing and continues to do does anyone with even an ounce of brains believe that when chapman comes off the il that the first one run situation closing situation that the yankees face that they're going to go to anyone other than clay holmes i mean come on regardless of what publicly is said and i understand why it's not a criticism of aaron boone for saying it i understand why why he's saying it but you sometimes have to read between the lines on these types of things. There is about 0% chance of the scenario that I just gave you, that it's a two to one game against whomever, because we don't know exactly when Chapman's coming back. I mean, he's uh, he's gonna throw a live BP at the Yankees minor league complex on Tuesday. Um, and then they'll make a decision if he needs another live BP session after that, or if they're gonna send him on a rehab assignment, or if, you know, they just decide to, to bring him back. I, I'm sure he'll probably do at least one or two rehab outings, but that hasn't been determined yet. But whenever he comes back, if anyone thinks in a two-to-one game against Team X, let's say Boston, um, that at Fenway Park, that anyone but Clay Holmes is going to walk out of that bullpen, uh, you're, you're, you're deluding yourself, regardless of what gets said publicly. I know this was a thing um, that we discussed would have some pushback in spring training. Uh, but how do you think Dylan Lawson's hit strikes hard mantra is going over in the clubhouse? Well, I mean, look, well, they're, they're, they're hitting strikes hard. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I mean, it's that's uh, I'm not sure that's the reason that they're hitting strikes hard. I think players probably, you know, I mean, I, I going back to T-ball, I mean, I tried to hit the ball hard. I think everybody that's ever picked up a bat, that's what you try to do. That's not a criticism of Dylan, by the way. I'm just I, I, I just never understood why that was such a you know, became a, a thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I mean, the, the offensive performance speaks for itself. They're doing something right. Uh, and the players have bought into what he's, you know, preaching. But, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I don't think that you can credit anyone but Aaron Judge for this season that Aaron Judge is having so far. I don't think you can credit anybody but Anthony Rizzo for the season that he Anthony Rizzo has had so far. And you can go down the list of some of the guys that have, that have stood out uh, and performed. But look, the Yankees are, are better with runners in scoring position this year uh, than they've been in some time. Uh, they've been a little bit better with, with, with pitch selection. They don't seem to chase as, as much as they did. Uh, the strikeout totals are, you know, are down from what they've been. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, it's a, right now it's a, it's a finely oiled machine and, and Dylan Lawson is, is a part of that. Uh, well, this will probably be our last question from, from all of us, but uh, I want to ask you kind of a personal question because I read your column basically every, every morning. So I, I just read the paper today. So I was just reading what you had wrote and uh, I kind of wanted to ask you, you've been covering since 2009. What made you want to cover the Yankees or even go into, you know, baseball or Yankees or anything like that? Well, it, it, Sean, that's a, it's a funny question. Well, it's not a funny question, but when I give you the answer, you'll understand why I said it's a funny question. So it's the worst kept secret at Newsday. And actually, and people, you know, cover baseball, you know, with me know this to be true. or Some of them do. I actually did not want the Yankees beat when it was offered to me in 2009. So I started at Newsday in 2002, and I was a part-timer covering high schools, answering phones, taking scores from you know all the high school coaches that call in, uh, the results, everything from fencing to wrestling to basketball to lacrosse to football, you name it. Um, and then the way it works, you know, you start to maybe cover some high school events, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I got hired full-time at Newsday in 2007, covering primarily college sports. Um, and then doing backup stuff where they would send me pretty much anywhere. I was a general, what you would call a general assignment reporter where you cover a little bit of everything. In 2008, I got moved to the Jets beat 
and that was the year Brett Favre was there, uh, Eric Mangini. They started off the season, uh, 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 what was it, nine and three, I believe. They beat Tennessee, who was undefeated. They were 10 and 0. They went down to Tennessee and beat them, and all of a sudden there was Super Bowl talk. And then they lost four of their last five. Favre had an elbow injury that everyone found out about at the end of the season. Um, and Mangini got fired. Rex Ryan got hired, et cetera. In April of 2009, my predecessor, Cat O'Brien, uh, left the newspaper industry. She, for some reason, didn't see growth in the industry. I don't know what she was possibly thinking. Um, that's sarcasm. Um, everyone knows what's happening to the newspaper industry. Uh, so she smartly escaped it in 2008. Um, and the sports editor at Newsday, Hank Winicki, uh, asked me if I wanted to take over the Yankees. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. For those who don't really know much about Cleveland, Cleveland is a football town, first, second, and third. The, the, the pop, most popular franchises by far in Cleveland are the Cleveland Browns, and second is the Ohio State Buckeyes football team. Uh, I always laughed when people went, went at the height of LeBron mania. They said, oh, it's a basketball town. They've taken over for the Browns. And it was like, no, it's not even close. Um, it's it's, it's the, the Browns. Then it's Ohio State football, and then the rest of them just sort of, you know, fight it out, whoever's, you know, the, the best of the rest. Um, so to me, not being from New York, I didn't fully understand what I was being offered, to be honest with you. To me, covering the NFL, because I grew up in an NFL town, uh, that was it wasn't going to get any better than that. So I had only done one year on the Jets. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I wanted to stick with that and try to become semi-competent at, at doing that. So after one year, I certainly wasn't ready to do that. And so I said, no. Hank then after some back and forth basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, well, it's really not a choice. You're going on the Yankees beat. So I started in May of 2009 uh, and as I had, and Hank is still the sports editor at Newsday, and I make a point of about once a year thanking him for forcing me onto the Yankees uh, beat because uh, in a line I, I've said before, you know, he dragged me kicking and screaming onto the Yankees beat and he would have to drag me kicking and screaming off of the Yankees beat because I absolutely love it. I, I've never been happier professionally, you know, doing what I'm doing. Um, I love the job. I love everything, you know, well, not everything about it, but um, it's, a, it's a hell of a way to make a living. I'm privileged to make a living regardless of what my Twitter persona comes off as sometimes. Um, trust me, I realize I'm one of the luckiest people uh, anywhere that I get paid to travel the country and, and cover baseball and sometimes internationally, such as when the Yankees go uh, went to London or if they end up going to Paris, you know, we saw that story. Um, it, I, I'm very lucky and privileged to, to be able to do it. So uh, I know, Sean, that's kind of a, a very long, much longer answer, I think, than you were, uh, you were looking for necessarily. But um, when you said what made me, you know, want to do it or whatever, I, the, the truth is I didn't want to do it. Um, and I, I, you know, my first X number of years, I, you know, was just trying to keep my head above water. Uh, it's a very competitive beat. There's a lot of good people, uh, you know, that cover baseball in New York. Uh, there's some people that aren't as good either. Um, but, you know, it, it's, there's a lot of really, really good reporters. Uh, so you're constantly on your toes. Uh, you're constantly trying to get to know people, trying to get people to trust you both from inside the Yankees organization, but also from other organizations as well, uh, whether that be scouts or players or coaches or managers, executives from other teams, whatever it may be. And it's a constant challenge and you can never know enough. You can never know enough information. You can never know enough people. Um, and so uh, that type of daily challenge invigorates you when I see, uh, you know, younger people come into the business, uh, you know, rather than looking down my nose at them and saying, what, what are they doing here? Uh, I, I watch carefully what they're doing and see what I can maybe uh, learn from them. Um, you know, generationally, certainly I cannot connect with players uh, the way a 23 or 25 year old, you know, might be able to. Uh, maybe there's something else that I, that I can bring to the table, um, you know, to connect with someone because ultimately that's what the, what the business is, is all about, regardless of what sport that you're, you're covering. But, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very, I had a real job in college, a factory job where you punched in and punched out. And I, and I, uh, you know, I, I said to myself, I, I never want to have a real job again. And, and you know, knock, knock on wood uh, at age 48, I, I still have been able to avoid that.
Well, we're very fortunate that you took that route, Eric, because we love reading your work. Thank you for hopping on with us, man. We really appreciate you taking the time. Sorry if we kept you a little longer, but we definitely enjoyed this conversation and this insight. Thank you. It was my pleasure, guys. I, I know it's been a few weeks, you guys trying to uh, get me to come on. So uh, I, again, I'm glad that we were able to work this out. And, and I thank you guys for reaching out and uh, you know listening to what I have to say or caring about what I have to say. No, we, we definitely do. Because uh, like I said, I was I read your your column all the time, so I I knew if I could you know find a way to reach out to you and you know uh, it it would be it would be an honor. So I appreciate you taking the time and uh, I thank you. Hopefully we can do this again sometime you know in in the future and and uh, again just thank you so much. It's my pleasure, guys. Really, it was. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Hopefully we'll get to see you soon. Absolutely, John, Enrique, Sean. A pleasure. Have a great rest of the night. You too. Thank you, Eric. Um, before you go, for the rare percentage of people that don't know about your work, where can they find you? Uh, Newsday.com or eboland11 on Twitter. Beautiful, beautiful. All right, Eric. Well, have a great rest of your night. And once again, thank you for hopping on with us. You're welcome, guys. Thank you. There it is. We want to thank Eric Bolin. To wrap this up, give you a preview a slight preview because i think we don't need to get much into this tampa bay Rays team we faced them enough already you got garrett cole versus shane mcclanahan monday you got tba to versus tba tuesday and then you got tba versus shane baz on wednesday you'd like to think that you're going to get some type of variation of either Cortez and Montgomery or Montgomery, then Cortez. All three of these are winnable games. You just swept this team. Tampa is three and seven in their last 10. They just lost two out of three to the lowly Orioles. Um, John, Sean, any thoughts on this upcoming series? For me to start, I would say there's no reason to not take two out of three. Um, I know it's, it's tough to play at the trop and then consistently play on the, the turf like that, you know, playing at the turf in Rogers Center and now doing it at Tropicana Field is never easy. Obviously, it takes a toll on people like Judge, Stan, and others. But we'll see them constantly moved around. You will definitely see Judge DH sometime at this point. It really depends how they rebound after the loss on Sunday uh, and, you know, come out and, and face the Rays if they look sluggish or if they look dominant. I think it'll be fine. I think they'll come in and I, I don't want to sound cocky or anything, but I could definitely see a sweep. And if anything, I could definitely see them taking two out of three because this team has been dominant so far this year. And I would be very surprised to see one loss really shake up, you know, the, the morale in, on this team. John, I don't care what John Sterling says. The Tropicana isn't a dump. That's perfect. Short and sweet. Yeah. That's all <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> hey man. That's a perfect way to end the show, John. Thank you. On that note, ladies and gentlemen, we will call it an episode. Thank you for listening. Be sure to give us a five-star rating and review, especially on iTunes. Be sure to tell your friends about us. Follow us at The Hottest Kina Pod, both on Twitter, Instagram, and you can find us on Facebook. We are everywhere from Apple Podcasts, to Spotify, to Stitcher, anywhere you find your podcasts. So from myself, John, and Sean, we wish everyone that celebrated Father's Day today a happy Father's Day, and we'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Go Yanks.